0: Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or at filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Hope this finds you well and that you've been keeping busy. This was an extremely busy week for me. I uploaded a number of podcasts this week, partly because the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival was going to kick off and I spoke with two ardent lovers of TCM, Kristen Lopez and Kate Gabrielle, and couldn't wait to upload their pods. And also balance things out with a conversation with my brother from another mother, Rob Belushi. We had a bit of good news this week. Watch with Jen is now available pretty much wherever you get podcasts with the exception of Apple. I need to work on my logo. I'm consulting with an artist and I'm hoping to be releasing that to Apple soon. And these will all be under the Watch with Jen banner, including the conversations on the Watch with Jen and Friends. So I'm hoping that you guys can subscribe to the podcast over on Spotify or Google or Stitcher and enjoy them there as well. I want to thank the patrons who changed their tiers this week. So I have some new ones at Tears, The Right Stuff, Broadcast News. What that means is I will be collaborating with a few of you in the future, dedicating some movies to my patrons who are looking for something specific, or also creating a segment or possibly an episode of either this podcast or Watch With Jen and Friends. Under a topic or theme that they have in mind, they're going to send me a few, I'll choose one and get to work. So I'm very much looking forward to that as well. And lastly, I just want to say that some of the movies that I'm recommending are available on a number of different outlets besides the one that I mentioned. Obviously this changes with country and availability. All of these should be available to rent as well. There is a stellar app that you can download called Just Watch. It's a favorite of mine. I use it all the time. It's perfect for when you know exactly what movie you want to watch. You type it in and it tells you all the different services that it's available on or where you can find it to rent and what format it is playing in SD HD 4k is invaluable and I do recommend it and let's go ahead and jump into the movies this week I was speaking a bit with Jacob who's one of the patrons And an MVP when it comes to Watch With Jen, he is wailing through all of the recommendations. As of this morning, he watched Easy Money, so I have one more person that I know who watched it. That makes a total of two outside my circle of friends. And he dug it, can't wait to get to the next ones. But he only has five left, which is amazing. And he is one of my broadcast news patrons and said he was kind of in the mood for a romance or to get swept away. So this week, I'm actually recommending Brie titles that have a romantic element. Actually, there there is one in the fourth film as well, but it turns into quite a scary little thriller, so I don't think that would apply, although it does sweep you away. So I hope, Jacob, that you'll find something good in this week's recommendations and possibly something you haven't seen because he is extremely knowledgeable when it comes to film and has seen pretty much everything. High fidelity, About a Boy, and Juliet Naked author Nick Hornby's characters have always been my kind of people. Like, looking in the mirror, whenever I read his books, in the sentences, on the pages staring back at me, I see not just myself, but my friends, family, crushes, and loves, passionate people. People that Jack Kerouac might have called the mad ones who can talk about books, music, movies, art, and life for hours. And that's exactly what Duncan, played by Chris O'Dowd, was like when Annie, played by Rose Byrne, first met him in Jesse Peretz's big screen adaptation of Juliet Naked, which is our first film for the week. Arriving in her small English seaside community full of ideas from the outside world, the exact same way she had when she returned from university in London to take her dad's post at a small history museum and care for her younger sister after he grew ill and died, Duncan's passion mirrored Annie's own. But although the film and media studies professor swept her off her feet early on, now 15 years later, Annie has started to realize that just like film, she is her boyfriend's second love. His first is music. Well, more than just music, one artist in particular, still hopelessly devoted to early 90s alternative singer-songwriter Tucker Crow, played by Ethan Hawke, whose Jeff Buckley meets Jeff Tweedy-ish breakout album, Juliet, Duncan considers a masterpiece. In his spare time, Duncan has created a shrine to the singer in the couple's basement, as well as a website devoted to the man and his work. The ringleader of roughly 200 middle-aged men, as Annie describes in her witty off-screen voiceover, Duncan and his fellow fanatics obsess over Crow's words and music while sharing their theories as to where they think he is today after he mysteriously walked out of a Minneapolis club two decades earlier in the middle of a set without looking back the source of a number of fights between the couple including yet another disagreement when annie opens and listens to an obscure cut of the album called not juliet but juliet naked that had been sent to her boyfriend annie finally has enough of duncan and tucker crow and she posts a negative review of juliet naked on his website and while it helps precipitate their breakup Ironically, this action also winds up causing her to obsess over Tucker as well when the musician suddenly sends her an email agreeing with her critique and it leads to a back and forth correspondence between the two that grows more revealing and flirtatious over time. Of course, fortunately for us, gradually life and fate intervenes and the two finally come face to face. Nick Hornby's novel was adapted by screenwriter Jim Taylor, who is a name you should remember. He collaborated so well and won Oscars for his work with director Alexander Payne he wrote adaptations and scripts of Sideways about Schmidt Election Citizen Ruth the Descendants if that is all he had written that my friends is a body of work Jim Taylor collaborates here with Tamara or Tamara Jenkins who is a director and writer she directed Slums of Beverly Hills The Savages and a stellar movie called Private Life which is available right now on Netflix with Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn that you should really seek out. The third screenwriter is Evgenia Peretz, who is Jesse Peretz's sister. The director, of course, is most famous. He did direct Our Idiot Brother, which Evgenia wrote, But he's most famous for his work on the small screen. He directed some of the best episodes of Girls, which is kind of a show that was all over the place, but when it worked, it really worked. Jesse also directed episodes of Divorce, Nurse Jackie, and Glow on Netflix. So he works with ensemble casts extremely well. One of those great British romantic dramedies that is... Very funny, but also moving in its way and built around the characters. The cast is first rate. Rose Byrne is the most charming leading lady. She's always got this glow about her. And she seems to be somebody who we instantly know or want to be friends with right away. Except, of course, when she's playing a villain, as she did so brilliantly in Spy. And Chris O'Dowd really nails that professor thing where he's a professor as a rock star. So he's kind of full of himself and also one of those guys who, you know, knows his subject inside and out and probably just really gets off whenever somebody has never heard it and hears his lecture and thinks, you know, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. It kind of reminds me of that wonderful speech that John Mahoney gives in Moonstruck, where he's always dating these younger women who are his students, and Olympia Dukakis has dinner with him, and she's asking him, why do men chase women And he gives this really powerful, probably for the first time, super honest look at his own life as a professor and how much he's this old gas bag who just repeats the same lectures and then every once in a while he'll stare out and see some woman looking back at him like he's you know this great guy who has this fountain of knowledge and Duncan kind of seems to be that sort of guy he's not like the skirt chaser that John Mahoney plays in Moonstruck, but he is tempted enough that he gets involved with a woman who listens to one of his lectures while things are kind of cooling down with Rose Byrne. It's one of those couples, and we all know them, who live together and eventually they start sort of living as roommates or they're used to each other, taking each other for granted. So these two play that very well. And Ethan Hawke, is just perfect for this role. In a way, it's kind of a parody of some of the roles we saw him play in the 90s. This slacker, sexy, mysterious guy who, you know, just sort of floated through life until it finally caught up with him. He doesn't quite philosophize as much as he usually does, which is probably a good thing. One of my friends can't stand that about Ethan Hawke. It was funny, the same week that Juliet Naked, which came out in 2018, was released in the theaters, First Reformed came out on DVD. And I actually reviewed both of those in the same week. But when I picked it up, she was with me. And I'm like, this is supposed to be so good. She said, you know, what is First Reformed about? And I start in, I'm like, Ethan Hawke plays a all of a sudden she cuts me off oh my god I can't stand Ethan Hawke he's always and I'm continuing going I'm like well he plays a and she says preaching and I'm like a priest of course he played a reverend I didn't know that at the time but that was kind of the epitome of an Ethan Hawke role and he's amazing in that film it's one of Paul Schrader's best but it was really cool to see him in this sort of the shaggy dog Ethan Hawke who probably needs a good wake-up call and he gets it when he travels to England to actually see his family he's had so many children with so many women over the years it's kind of funny when they all walk in the room and Rose Byrne happens to be there and all of a sudden gets just confronted by his baggage in people form very very funny it's a great Saturday evening movie when you're in the mood for a romantic comedy and it's intelligent fun and kind of reminds me of those great movies that we used to see in the 90s And interestingly, that's when Nick Hornby's work really kind of hit his stride was in the late 90s with people that actually seem like people and not just Prince Charming interchangeable cutouts where a woman meets a guy and we're just supposed to think he's wonderful and he's really beige. These are actually fully formed people with flaws and all, and I think that's what makes it really special. So I think you'll dig it. It's available on Hulu right now and also for rent at any number of digital retailers. If you followed me on Twitter long enough, the next movie I'm going to recommend will seem very familiar to you. It's another one that I talk about way too much and it is From 2007, available right now on Voodoo and IMDb TV, from a trio of Frenchmen. Director Frank Calfoun, writer Alexandra Aha, who's a director in his own right. He just directed Crawl, Piranha 3D, and screenwriter Gregory Levisour, who wrote a bunch of things with Alexandra Aha, including The Hills Have Eyes, High Tension, Frank Calfoun. Foon actually acted in High Tension, had a little role in this one, and Piranha 3D. So these Frenchmen work together quite often. It's a film I not only talk about all the time on Twitter, usually with a cool assist from Amelia Mangan. Hello, Amelia. But also one that I chose when David Ehrlich was asking his critic survey group for IndieWire to name some underappreciated, terrifyingly good movies for Halloween a few years back. This film is great any time of year. Here is what I wrote for IndieWire. Overlooked during its theatrical run back in 2007, when it was released more than a week after Halloween, and not nearly close enough to the Christmas holiday, which is when director Frank Calphoon's Intelligent Scarefest takes place, P2 is a thinking person's horror movie. Perfect for fans of the female-centric Panic Room and Red Eye, which was one of our earlier picks, P2 finds Rachel Nichols held hostage in the locked parking garage of her office building at the start of the three-day holiday weekend by Wes Bentley's unstable security guard. A strong two-hander, featuring a dark hammy turn by Bentley, who dives into his role as the Elvis-obsessed villain with Nicolas Cage-like Abandon, the film takes the time to introduce and adhere us to its main characters before it pulls the ripcord. And much like Nichols does everything in her power to outwit her captor, P2 respects its audience enough to rely on logic as much as possible for the film's first two acts before culminating in a series of convoluted but no less effective cat-and-mouse confrontations. Recommended not only for Halloween, but also to have yourself a scary little Christmas. This word-of-mouth horror favorite is a cult classic in the making. And it's also one, interestingly enough, that Roger Ebert gave a pretty darn good review to. It kind of sneaks up on you. I remember when I rented it at Blockbuster. Yes, this was a while ago, obviously. I was not expecting much. Just sort of a mindless thriller to freak me out, you know, help get my mind off whatever was going on in 07. And I was completely transported by it. Wes Bentley is somebody who I always think should be doing more. He should be a bigger household name. I don't personally know if it was some choices he made after American Beauty or he just never caught on. But I think he should be right in the conversation with Tobey Maguire and Jake Gyllenhaal as another great character actor. Of course, one of the things about thrillers or horror movies in general is that it's very dependent on being surprised. So I'm going to not say as much about this one because it's important to go in knowing as little as possible, except for the fact that it's a woman who works in an office she goes downstairs tries to start her car it doesn't work she's expected at her parents house for the holidays Wes Bentley is out as the security guard wanting to help her of course she wants to just maybe go upstairs get a cab that kind of thing and he wastes enough time tries to first of all just sort of jokingly ask her to have a holiday meal with him when of course that's where she's headed and it's awkward she says I believe like another time she's very nice every woman has been in one of those situations where of course you want to be nice when you let somebody down easily but also somebody who gives you the wrong vibe or you're worried that they could be slightly unhinged or slightly unstable and she's definitely getting those red flags from Bentley right away. Listen to them, ladies. They're important. Obviously, first impressions sometimes evolve the longer you get to know somebody, but listen to your instincts and trust those. And she does, but she just finds herself cornered and is also one of those women like me who's probably our enemy is our politeness so sometimes I think we've not made our opinions known or our beliefs that like dude no I'm not interested in you just because we want to go along or be polite and it's interesting to see her sort of mentally try to get out of the situation before she realizes It is not something that she can intellectually do. It's a visceral horror film. It was one that I think scared me even more because around the time I saw it, I actually worked in an office building and parked on the P2 level. No, our security guard wasn't creepy. I barely saw him, but he was fine. But it was one that definitely gave me the heebie-jeebies. And it's a film I think you'll really enjoy. It'll freak you out. And it's cool to see her kind of move beyond the politeness and really have to assert herself and try to outsmart her scary-as-hell captor, which is kind of why, and this goes back to Buffy, and of course way back in the 70s with John Carpenter's Halloween these movies are always sort of weirdly empowering to women. Yes, you have to look at the ones that are exploitation, and they do exist. There's kind of that balance or that fine line of directors who, it's like there are more ways to show a strong woman than just kicking ass or something. But this goes beyond the exploitation that kind of You would see in something like a Kill Bill, while of course it's a great movie, there is that undercurrent that's a little uncomfortable. This one really makes you identify more with Rachel Nichols. And no, I'm not comparing it to Kill Bill, of course. I'm just saying films like that, that sort of involve a woman and also show her as both strong while also kind of relishing a little bit in the torture. This one, I mean, there are scenes where, you know, she is backed against the wall, and it is horrifying. But she rises to the occasion, and I think you will really like fighting alongside her. So I can't recommend P2 enough. And after you see P2, do hit me up on Twitter, and we can kick off a cool conversation it is always awesome to see how many other P2 fans come out of the woodwork once that one gets a mention and we're going from the three Frenchmen who specialize in horror to a French woman who delivered quite a seductive romance in 2017 with The Sower s o w e r sower it's a film you can find right now on film movement plus which i highly recommend i've reviewed film movement titles for years i used to host these movies also at the library they were always so thought-provoking fascinating and stimulated some really good discussions and the film is also available on Tubi, T-U-B-I, for you to watch for free. In the film, after a man claims he's so hungry that he feels like he hasn't eaten in three days, Violet, played by Pauline Burleigh, waits a mere moment to respond. It's the altitude, she tells him, and the unexpected response just hangs in the air, as if to imply that that's the reason why the occupants of the small French farming community, in director Marine Franson's The Sower, are so ravenous. Discovering in a startling opening sequence that time and circumstance has played an overwhelming role with the men of their village rounded up and arrested when Napoleon dissolved the Republic in December of 1851. The women of the community are left behind to fend for themselves. Watching as some of Violet's devastated neighbors retreat to their beds and her best friend burns her wedding dress in mourning for the event she fears will never come, Gradually with time, the women come together in order to carry on tending to the land in a way that gives them both purpose and a place to work out their pain. Intriguingly, although they miss men in a variety of ways, from their help with the harvest to unbridled lust. The absence of men inspires the now independently-minded younger women who've grown increasingly bold in their views to talk openly about sex, and perhaps, heady from that altitude, grow increasingly amorous in the process, yearning to not only make love but get pregnant and start a family. The young women decide to make a pact, viewing themselves as separate. From the older women with children to raise and comfort, since they have people and these younger ones are alone, the sower's younger set vows that if a man ever crosses their path and wants one of the women, he would get the rest as well in the hopes of bringing more babies into the world. Not bothering to consider the practical issues, including the man or woman's feelings about all of this. Or what would happen if the men, the fathers, boyfriends, fiancés, ever came back and discovered this. Just knowing that their daughters are talking nonsense, as the subtitled phrase goes in the film. The older women just stay quiet and let them have their fantasy regardless for fun. Kind of like women everywhere sort of fantasize about the perfect man, or their crushes on actors, or writers, or musicians, or whatever. Just like men have their fantasies, the women just think, ah, oh, what's it going to hurt? This will never happen. Their ardent desire, somewhat abated by the fairy tale that they've concocted, Things go back to normal for the women until one day when backlit by the colors of an altitude enhanced clear blue sky, and this film is just simply gorgeous to the to the eye, a handsome blacksmith played by Albin Lenoir, wanders into the village and becomes instantly drawn to the virginal violet the only literate female in the community at the time, although their relationship begins tentatively as she opens her home to the visitor, works with him in the fields, brings him dinner every night. Once those two bond over their love of literature, their relationship blossoms into a tender romance. The film is based upon Violet Aylode's opus, L'homme semence or the Seed man. I know I probably butchered the hell out of that, which was written in 1919 and published way later in '06. Fittingly, given its themes, the 38 page story that gave birth to the sower was created explicitly for and willed to the author's future female descendants. Director Marine Franzen, along with her co-writers Jacqueline Sirchot and Jacques Fiaschi, again, butchering that, I do apologize, they treat the source material less like a source of just erotic titillation and more as a feminist-minded work ahead of its time. Franson opts for a naturally romantic, yet undeniably dramatic approach as Violette is pressured to hold up her end of the women's sexual bargain and let the other women have at her man. The film is shot with minimal artificial light, evident in its contrast between days spent in the blindingly bright fields and the film's intimate dusky nights. Its painterly rendered visuals are reminiscent of artwork from the Napoleonic era, and are brought just exquisitely to life by cinematographer Alain Duplantier. On the surface, of course, it's a straightforward tale simply told, but given the complexity of its female-centric themes and sensual nature overall, The Sower really begs to be compared and contrasted with movies like Like Water for Chocolate, Valley Pope, and Raise the Red Lantern. Likewise, the allegorical references to the harvest and the double meaning therein of seeds being planted strongly recalls the fellow female-directed award winner Antonia's Line and the 1995 film from Marlene Goris would also make a potent double feature with the film here by Marine Francene. Antonia's Line, if you haven't seen it, and it's also Interestingly enough, it was a Miramax feature, I believe, but it's now available by Film Movement and on Film Movement Plus is one of my favorite movies directed by women. Everybody goes for Jane Campion's The Piano, and while that is also a masterpiece, I think Antonia's line should be right up there with it. The only difference here is that The Sower doesn't have nearly as much character development as those other movies I mentioned. Particularly with regard to the supporting players, they kind of all start to blur together or we don't know too much about them. But still, it's just so involving and Franson's artistry enhances the story so well that we can't help but be compelled through the entire thing and she feeds her ravenous film, with seeds of beauty, independence, feminism, and romance throughout, we're seduced by its sumptuous, sun-drenched beauty, and ultimately, the end result is an artful film that, like its intoxicating altitude, is sure to attract. That quote that was from my review found its way onto the back of the box when this movie was released to DVD. And I was quite honored to be there. This isn't one that probably will appeal to all of you. Maybe the P2 fans will be like, what is Jen doing here? But if you're open-minded and interested in all types of movies, I do hope that you give The Sower a chance. Most of the time when we watch concert movies, a lot of screen time is eaten up by crowd reaction. The crying girls, the applause, the sing-alongs, the homemade signs. But when it came to 1978's The Last Waltz, that was not going to be the M.O. for director Martin Scorsese, who shot the movie in 1976, long dubbed the greatest concert movie ever made. The Last Waltz was chosen for preservation in the Library of Congress in 2019 as a film that's historically or aesthetically important. And what took them so long? I am so glad that it's in there now. It's a Scorsese masterpiece and one that doesn't really get discussed as much as his fictional features or features that are biopics or based on real-life events. The band that is at the heart of the last waltz is none other than the band, with Robbie Robertson on guitars, piano, and vocals, Richard Manuel on piano, drums, organ, clavinet, the dobro, and vocals, Garth Hudson on organ, piano, accordion, synthesizer, clavinet, saxophone, Levon Helm on drums, mandolin, and vocals, and Rick Danko on bass, fiddle, and vocals. The final concert that the band ever played, in the first place that they performed as a band, the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco, the film's concert was shot on November 25, 1976, and in the movie... Scorsese cares very little about the crowd. You may incidentally see them, but that is never his intent. The story he wants to tell is the interaction between the men on stage, this band of men who were as close as brothers. And in fact, just this year here in the States, although the film did come out in Canada in 2019 was the title Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, which is a phenomenal documentary produced by Martin Scorsese, which told the story of the men that we see in The Last Waltz. So the films play very well together as a double feature. And Once We're Brothers is now available to rent on demand. This one is just $6.99. At least that's As much as I'm seeing it available to rent. Music of course has always played a huge role in Martin Scorsese's films starting with Be My Baby in Mean Streets and Beyond and Robbie Robertson who's in the band and became very very tight with Martin Scorsese has been his music supervisor and done the music on a number of his films all the way up to the recent Irishman. How those two got together was... None other than the band's former tour manager, Jonathan Taplin, who was the band's tour manager from 1969 to 72. He produced Mean Streets and was the one that suggested Martin Scorsese to Robbie Robertson. Introduced those two. They hit it off and have been working together ever since. In some respects, you could almost say that there's Robertson's life with the band, and then his life with Martin Scorsese. And this is that moment where they overlapped, the final moment. And in fact, their closeness is the main source of criticism. The late Levon Helm, in his book entitled This Wheel's on Fire, which was his autobiography that came out in 1993, felt that Scorsese and Robertson conspired to make the band look like they were just Robertson's side men and his belief that although Robertson was depicted singing powerful backing vocals was actually singing into a microphone that was turned off throughout most of the concert. He was angry also about Manuel and Hudson's minimal screen time such as when Manuel, who has an amazing voice, sang during the closing number, I shall be released and dubbed the film, quote, the biggest fucking ripoff that ever happened to the band because he argues that he, Manuel, Danko, and Hudson never received any money for the various home videos, DVDs, and soundtracks that were produced by Warner Brothers for the film. There's a great sort of bitter joke that I read about Levon Helm seeing the first cut of the movie and turning to someone when the shot was on Robbie and saying just what this film needs, another fucking close-up of Robbie Robertson. And yes, Robbie is definitely front and center and you feel the connection between him and Scorsese but the band as a unit is what makes them so good and thankfully I feel personally that their rapport and that their dynamic is on full display especially when they play such great songs as their hits up on Cripple Creek the wait, the night they drove old Dixie down, and you can see the affection that they have for one another, even though they were falling apart at the time. Drugs played a big role in that. Alcohol, ego—it's all chronicled in *Once Were Brothers*. Why that film is dubbed *Once Were Brothers*, Robbie Robertson and the band, is because. It is from Robbie's point of view. And of course then you do have to take it with a grain of salt that it's from one person's point of view. But all these caveats aside, The Last Waltz is my favorite concert movie ever made. I think it celebrates their work and also just features them at the height of their musical power as well as the guest performers that show up for the concert, including Bob Dylan Only two of his songs he allowed to be filmed for The Last Waltz. Those were Baby Let Me Follow You Down and Forever Young. He was very worried that this movie would overshadow his film, Reynaldo and Clara, so was reluctant to be in this film. Robertson reassured his old mentor that no, this one would be released later, and they held true to that promise. Interestingly, we learn in Once We're Brothers that the band had been Dylan's official backing band, this is before they went out on their own, when Dylan went electric. And we hear all about the chronicles of that in this new documentary, which I highly, highly recommend. So their relationship with Dylan, as well as Eric Clapton and others, is rooted in some great material that you will experience in Once We're Brothers. But even if you don't watch The documentary, The Last Waltz, just plays like gangbusters. Here are some of the artists that you will see perform in this movie. You get Ronnie Hawkins doing Who Do You Love, Neil Young doing Helpless, Joni Mitchell does Coyote, Such a Night by Dr. John, The Incomparable Muddy Waters doing Manish Boy, Eric Clapton's Further Up on the Road, there's also Bobby Charles, Neil Diamond, Ronnie Wood, but my favorite performance is, hands down, Van Morrison's Drunken, or High, we don't know which. Probably a combination. Drugs were rampant. When Neil Young hits the stage, you even see a little white powder on his nose. Van Morrison's rendition of Caravan just hits it out of the park. First of all, there's nothing better than watching Van Morrison in this, like, velvet jumpsuit, like, scatting. I mean, that alone is worth watching the movie. I watch his performance of Caravan on YouTube a ridiculous number of times and always puts me in a great mood but the scatting is just one part of it it's when he gets so into the song which is always great when you know they're not just going through the motions of oh my god i have to sing my big hit yet another time but he regales us with a bunch of high kicks the high kicks are a little dangerous you almost want to reach through the screen and sort of help balance van morrison So they're a little off-balance, a little wacky, very under the influence, and just very ridiculously entertaining just doing whatever he needs to to delight the hell out of you. And Van Morrison's performance I think is one of the high points of the movie for sure. That is my favorite performance although there are a lot of ones that are right up there. There's also some really interesting memories and recollections that the band members talk about behind the scenes. I will admit mostly it is Robbie recalling things and stories that he he remembers or little anecdotes, but they help break up some of the scenes and make the film into acts. The soundtrack's legendary. It was released on, I want to say, like four records. You're going to hear a lot of songs that weren't in the movie. There's now been a new version with like all of the unused material, including Touralura, the Irish lullaby performed by Van Morrison, and there's some footage of that in black and white that's been released there's so much other stuff for you to discover once you get hooked on this movie which it's hard not to i remember when i first saw it as like a teenager and just going into it mainly because i loved the weight i didn't know many of the other songs by the band or even who else was involved but i loved their song the weight and found myself just completely under the spell of this film Of course, later on, I got super into Bob Dylan and Neil Young and Van Morrison, so then I really enjoyed revisiting it. I hadn't revisited it, though, in a number of years until around Christmas time when I was watching with a friend and just chose this one out of the blue, put it on, and we were both kind of like, I don't know, are we in the mood for this or not? She was also very taken with the fact that, you know, around this time, Robbie was super gorgeous. So, and... Scorsese's camera, capturing their interplay with, as Levon jokes, so many close-ups, was definitely making our evening. But after that, I looked up who was still alive in the band and what was going on with everyone, and that's how I found out about the documentary, and I was super excited when I got the chance to review Once Were Brothers as well. So my affection for this one is strong, and I've rattled on way longer than, than any of the other films do forgive me for that but i hope you check it out and you enjoy it maybe not as much as i do because you know it's pretty extreme but i hope you do enjoy the concert and the last waltz from that thanksgiving show back in 1976 As quiet as The Last Waltz is loud, The Accidental Tourist, which came out in 1988, is one of director Lawrence Kasdan's best movies, and probably it's one of his least well-known. And that's partly because it stars Kathleen Turner and William Hurt in their reunion from the first time they starred together for director Kasdan in Body Heat which I still consider to be the best neo-noir ever made. I was fortunate enough to see Kathleen Turner give a talk at Arizona State University, and it was a really wide-ranging lecture where she shared memories of working on all of her pictures and just her life in general with rheumatoid arthritis And it was fascinating when she looked back on Body Heat and talked about being just so nervous she was shaking. And that scene down by the water in Body Heat where she's supposed to seduce William Hurt. And it reminded me of that scene in To Have and Have Not where in her autobiography Lauren Bacall said, she was so nervous. She thought she was shaking in to have and have not in the very famous you know how to whistle don't you Steve scene where she has to kind of charm and seduce as well her future off-screen husband Humphrey Bogart. But this film while not being as fiery or as just instantly iconic as Body Heat is one that I really encourage you to seek out. Lawrence Kasdan is a wonderful director of people, especially their relationships, human behavior, of course, in The Big Chill, which I know it's cool to make fun of or whatever, but seriously, watch The Big Chill and tell me that doesn't impact you. It was actually the movie I first saw that made me have a total crush on William Hurt. Of course, out of all the actors or characters in it, I'm gonna fall for the messed up impotent guy. I mean, it's just fitting. But this one kind of also foreshadows Kazdan's other underrated movie that I think I'm one of the only people I know that has seen it. I even own the DVD called Mumford, which came out in 1999 with Lauren Dean, Jason Lee, Alfred Woodard. It's a great movie. But The Accidental Tourist is the one I want to talk about today. It hits both ends of the emotional spectrum. There's parts where you're going to want to cry in and parts that will make you swoon or laugh. So it plays to whatever mood you're in. The film is based upon an outstanding novel by Anne Tyler. Ann Tyler is one of our great American novelists. Her books are definite people movers. She wrote an outstanding one called Saint Maybe that I cannot recommend enough. I've also enjoyed some of her not quite as critically acclaimed titles, including Patchwork Planet. Anne Tyler, actually, to tie this back... To our first film, Juliet Naked. Her book, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant, is what inspired Nick Hornby to become a novelist, or that's at least what he answered in an interview that I still remember to this day. The script for The Accidental Tourist was written by Lawrence Kasdan and Frank Galati, based upon the Ann Tyler novel. And the movie centers on Macon Leary, William Hurt, a Baltimore based. Writer of travel guides for reluctant business travelers. People who, for whatever reason, hate leaving home. His guides, which are the Accidental Tourist series, make you believe that you're still home. He finds restaurants that are just like the cuisine you would eat across the street from your office, or hotel rooms that feel very Americanized. And he's a creature of comfort. His marriage, however, to... Kathleen Turner, who plays Sarah, we find is falling apart after the murder of their 12-year-old son, Ethan. Kind of going into autopilot mode in their stages of grief. The two live together like roommates. Again, this ties back to the, the discussion that was inspired by Juliet naked. But Kathleen Turner has had enough of this stasis. It's not working for her anymore. She decides that they need to go their separate ways. She gets an apartment and moves out. Shortly after that happens, Macon breaks his leg downstairs while doing laundry. There's a scene with the dog acting up and a skateboard and he returns to his childhood home to stay with his eccentric siblings which could sound like a little sitcom-ish but it isn't it is treated with a realism and a melancholy that makes this movie work at the same time he's pursued by muriel pritchett played by gina davis in her oscar-winning role as best supporting actress in animal hospital employee and dog trainer with a son with some medical issues. She latches right on to William Hurt, basically as soon as he walks through the doors, asks for his home phone number right away, and offers to train his unruly dog, who desperately needs to be trained. Soon the two become involved. It's almost inevitable based on kind of how much she wants him, and I think, of course, he's flattered, But also, he's in a place where he just needs something. And that's maybe not the best way to start a relationship. And it's one that becomes a little bit challenged because just as they're getting used to one another and he's becoming attached to Muriel's young son, that's when Sarah calls. So it's a love triangle film. It also boasts a phenomenal supporting turn by Amy Wright as Rose Leary who's kind of the mother hen sibling, who mothers all of the various brothers. Macon, of course, and her other brothers, played by David Ogden and Steers, and Ed Begley Jr. Bill Pullman has a great role as Macon's editor, who develops feelings for Rose. And Macon, obviously, is not in favor of those two hooking up, but... There's a cute romantic subplot there as well. Macon himself is a flawed character in need of figuring out exactly what he wants out of life and also needing to move on from this tragedy while still, of course, loving and missing his son, find a way to move forward. There's a lot going on from an emotional character-based standpoint and Kazdan really pulls it off. This is one of the best films from 1988. And like I said, it is one of Kazdan's best. While it was a big critical hit in 88, Roger Ebert gave it four stars, and it received four Academy Award nominations, including not only for Gina Davis, who took home the award, but also Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, and Score nominations. The score was done by John Williams. It didn't win any of those. Gina Davis was the sole winner. But it's one that over the years, and especially because Body Heat has grown in so much esteem, that it's dwarfed this film. I'd seen it growing up when I was discovering Kazdan's movies and became a huge fan of William Hurt, also Kathleen Turner and Gina Davis. I mean, that's a triple threat right there. But then I had not seen it in years until Voodoo put it on their free service. And I watched it once last year, and I was just completely taken in by it. And it's one that I've actually written down on this massive list of titles to recommend to you guys that has been there since the beginning. The Accidental Tourist was one of the first films that I put on my watch with Jen List. And every week I've kind of flirted with the idea of bringing it out. But this week really felt like the right time i thought it balanced well with the other films and it seemed initially i guess too somber to recommend but just as the sower in its weird sort of atmosphere of men being locked up and women being sort of prisoners of their situation the men are prisoners of napoleon and the women are now stuck in the sphere which takes on a whole new meaning because of the quarantine I thought this film would maybe speak to this moment as well for a few reasons. One, because Megan has his completely happy suburban life sort of ripped into by this horrific murder and must try to figure out a way to come back from that. Like, how can you go on when there's so much darkness in the world? But also, in a weird way, his books for travelers, the accidental tourist titles that he comes up with, traveling to various destinations, and coming up with the best way to cope with a weird surroundings or what's going on just seem to again take on new meaning right now so I hope that this one will speak to you whether you're looking for an emotional or an empathetic character film it's very humanistic or if you're looking for the quirky angles because it's totally there there's some definite comedy in this one especially with the Leary family and poor Rose struggling to look after her brothers, who she calls the boys. They alphabetize all of their canned goods. I mean, there's a lot of quirks to be had in this family. Quirky environments and quirky jobs, in particular, are a signature of Ann Tyler in St. Maybe. There was a character that people could hire that would go through all of your stuff and sort out all the junk and just throw away things that you couldn't bear to sort through yourself. Maybe you just had a house full of junk. Patchwork Planet involved a man who was kind of the handyman of everything. She's very interested in these jobs you wouldn't expect. These are not nine to five jobs. And also characters who reveal so much about themselves and how they react to things. There's no substitute for her novels. I recommend you pick those up, but Kazdan does wonders with her literary world, all of her Baltimore-based books. This is easily the best Anne Tyler adaptation that I have seen. Of course, Breathing Lessons was also very good. It was made for the Hallmark Hall of Fame with Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin. But as far as a feature film, you're not beating The Accidental Tourist. And for Lawrence Kasdan fans, this is probably one of the ones that, like Mumford, you might have looked past, and I hope you will consider checking out. So to recap, this week we had Juliet Naked, which is available on Hulu. The Sower, that is S-O-W-E-R, is on Film Movement Plus and Tubi. P2 is available on Vudu and IMDb TV for free. The Last Waltz is now playing on Amazon Prime. And The Accidental Tourist is for free on Vudu. I sure hope that you guys have a good rest of your week, and I look forward to talking to you guys soon. Thanks so much for listening, and take care. I am Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com or Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.